I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to She Starst It with Angelica Malin, the podcast that celebrates incredible, inspiring women who are at the top of their industries, from food to fashion, law to politics. This is a podcast about celebrating female entrepreneurship, power and potential exploring what it really takes to be a trailblazer in today's world. I'm your host, entrepreneur and journalist Angelica Malin, and every week I'll be asking a new guest for their three career turning points and answering the question we've all wondered at some point, how did she start it? She Starts It with Angelica Malin is kindly sponsored by Bloom and Wild. If you're like me and you love having fresh flowers around you while you're relaxing at home, but I hate having to carry them around with me all day, and who's ever home long enough to arrange a delivery anymore? Bloom and Wild have got us covered. They're the UK's top-rated online florist and they deliver right to your letterbox. So you can get fresh buds ready to flower, they can last up to 10 days and you don't even have to worry about being home for the delivery. They'll give you £10 off your first order with the code SHE. Straight and simple, S-H-E. They offer free next-day delivery up to 10pm. They ship across the UK, France and Germany, so they've got you covered. So head on over to bloomandwild.com, use the offer code SHE so they know I sent you and treat yourself. Natasha Devon MBE is a writer and activist. She tours schools and colleges throughout the UK, delivering talks as well as conducting research on mental health, body image, gender and social equality. She campaigns both on and offline to make the world a fairer place. Her current projects are the Mental Health Media Charter and Where's Your Head At, which aims to change the law to protect the mental health of British workers. Natasha writes regularly for The Garden, is a former columnist for Cosmopolitan magazine and currently has a weekly column in The Times Educational Supplement. Her Mind Manual, A Beginner's Guide for Being Mental and A to Z, was published in May 2018. Thank you for joining me, Natasha. Thank you for having me. That reads as an amazing bio. Could you unpick that a little bit for me and tell me, in your own words, what your kind of day-to-day work looks like? Well, I never have the same day twice, which is fortunate because I get bored really easily. But the bulk of my work is with 15 to 25-year-olds. So I go into schools, colleges and universities and deliver talks, but the more important aspect of my job, I would say, is I conduct focus groups. So I'm doing research. It's not sort of scientific research. It's more kind of qualitative than that. But I'm asking 15 to 25 year olds about the barriers to their well-being, what information they'd like about mental health. And when I'm in schools in particular, I always tend to start with the question, if you could pick a PSHE lesson on anything, what would you pick? Mm. I'm trying to bring the mental health conversation to where they are. I feel like a lot of the time when we awareness raise, we talk about severe symptoms of mental illness. And it's important to know about that, but it's not always relatable. So I'm trying to kind of universalize the mental health conversation. Mm. Is it a fascinating line of work? Do you, do you love it? I do. It's a made up job. So it takes a little while to explain it probably. But yeah, I do. I think I feel like working with um, particularly teenagers is the best job ever because they're a really 
interesting point in their brain development. They're, mm. they're kind of smart enough to understand how the word, world works. They're just starting to get, from a neurological point of view, things like self-reflection and understanding where their strengths lie. But they're, they're not fixed in their belief systems yet. So you get all these kind of wonderful left field mm. debates and things. And it, yeah, it keeps you on your toes. Gives <laughs> <laughs> you love. What are some of the biggest problems that you've seen with mental health doing the work that you do in, in that age category? The, the really frustrating thing is that the problems, I would say, for young people are mainly systemic. So it's things like the we've, there's a lot of frustrations within the education system itself. And these date back really to, to Michael Gove taking over as education secretary in 2010. He cut a lot of the things that we know have a beneficial effect on well-being, things like sport and art and music and uh, personal health and social education all had their budgets really severely stripped down. Mm. And we've also seen increased testing. So exams are becoming very kind of exam factory and that's creating a lot of anxiety. Coupled with that, you've got children and adolescent mental health services have been cut really severely, social services, educational psychologists school counsellors. It's really like all the support that was in place to Mm. make sure that children had a community and a network has kind of disappeared. So I would say, you know, people always talk about stigma and awareness with mental health. I would say for that age group, they're really clued up about it. They know they know what they're going through, but what they need is support. Mm. Was there anything that came in the place of those things that were cut? There was a lot of PR (laughs) and kind of rhetoric and spin. I, I mean, just yesterday, uh, the the Prime Minister lit up the House of Commons green um, to show her commitment to mental health. Mm. And that's a perfect example of um, a, a tokenistic gesture. And, uh, you know, every single reply I saw on social media was saying, great, now can you fund the mental health services, please? You know? Yeah. Um, so there's been a lot of talk of um, prioritising it and burning injustices and et cetera, et cetera. And there's even been talk of investment. But when you look at the investment, it's, it's not really an investment at all. You know, a lot of the money isn't ring fenced and it's spent on other things or it depends on savings in other areas. So spin, Mm, I would say. A lot of spin, yeah. Yeah. It's like turning it green. What is is that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, serious spin. So I ask uh, each of my guests who come on the show to give me three career points that they feel like defined their journey. Can you tell me a little bit about the first one that you chose? So I chose the the moment that kickstarted my career um, about 12 years ago now. I recovered from an eating disorder when I was 25 and I now know because of the amount of therapy I've had and the research I've done into mental health that my eating disorder was um, was a coping strategy for anxiety. But I didn't know that at the time. Mm. But I was just kind of newly in recovery and um, I didn't have a job. So I had to think about what I wanted to do with my life. And one of the thoughts I kept having was, I can't believe this has happened to me. You know, I had this idea of myself as somebody who was always going to be successful. I, you know, I was a straight A student. Like, if you look at my academic career on paper, it looks like a success story. I was a bit of an overachiever at school. And at the age of 25, I didn't have a job. So I was thinking, how have I ended up here? And then my next thought was, well, why didn't you think it would happen to you? What makes you so special that you thought you were immune from this kind of situation? And I realized that part of the answer to that question had to do with how I was taught about mental health at school. Because mm. it was very much like, you know, the person who would come in and do the assembly. And it was about, you know, what it's like to be sectioned with depression or to nearly die of anorexia. Really charismatic people, inspiring, interesting stories. And they resonated with me, definitely. 
but I didn't apply them to myself. Mm. I thought that's an interesting story. Doesn't really mm. it doesn't really connect to your own life. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so I thought, well, what if we could make mental health more closely resemble physical health? Because we acknowledge from a really early age that we've got a body and we understand we have to look after it, and it's an ongoing process. You know, we don't go to the gym once and go right, fit, done. Mm. <laughs> that's that's not how it works. So I was trying to find ways to, like I say, universalize the mental health conversation. So what I did initially was I went and I interviewed 500 teenagers and I asked them if they could pick a lesson on anything, what would they have? And overwhelmingly, the answer they gave me was body image. Mm -hmm. So I found some experts and I created this lesson plan. At the same time, I happened to reconnect with an old school friend called Ruth Rogers, who had just started a project called Body Gossip which was an arts and theatre project. And together, I brought the education stream in, she brought the art stream in, and we created the charity Body Gossip, which still exists. Um, And that's how my journey in schools began. It's amazing. Did did you have a lot of self-belief in this journey, or were you just kind of feeling as you go, like you said, you kind of made up a job to some extent? Did you really believe in what you were doing, though? I had no idea that this is where I would end up. And and in fact, the school's thing, it kind of started as a hobby. So how I was actually earning money at that time was um, the therapy practice where I got my therapy for my eating disorder was looking for a receptionist. And I said, if I come on work and reception, can I be like an apprentice? So can I sit in on some of the sessions and will you teach me the theory behind cognitive behavioral therapy and all of that? And I did that for two years working there alongside going into schools. And then by 2010, the school stuff had got so popular that I was able to do it as a job. But that was never my intention Mm, when I started out. Just kind of took off. Yeah. Something that I find very interesting is people who have suffered with these problems themselves, especially with eating sorts, eating disorders choosing to go down a path in that arena and I I find it fascinating but I also part of me thinks God if I'd had an eating disorder I don't know if that that's if I would feel strong enough to then go and specialise I have a friend who had a a very bad eating disorder at school and then she went to train to be a Samaritan and a counsellor specialising in that Mm. and I I just wonder could I do that did you ever find it like triggering to be around those circles having suffered yourself you have to work very hard I think if you're going to speak about your journey on creating a version of your story that isn't triggering for you because you you know I'm I'm going into about three schools a week now and I don't I very often do more than one class during that visit so I could tell my story 10 times in a week and so whilst everything that I tell the the pupils that I work with is true I've kind of I've created a narrative that's easy to understand and it's easy for me to tell because ultimately it's not about me it's about what they can learn from my story Mm. and I should say that that's just the first five minutes of the lesson it's not you know I don't spend the whole hour Mm. when I'm in there telling my story it's it's more about takeaway tips for them but I think it is important that they know that I've been there because that gives me kind of credibility and and authenticity but um yeah I, I think anybody who was thinking about doing this you do have to be at a certain point in your recovery, I think, because otherwise you're just punching an emotional bruise. Mm, mm, yeah, and you, you and that gets into a bit of a danger zone. Yeah. I remember that at school when I was growing up, I was at boarding school, and they were terrible at how to pastorally deal with people who were suffering from eating disorders or body image issues. And I was at basically an all-boys boarding school, which wow. took in girls at sixth form. Yeah. So it was 700 boys to 50 girls. 
What was that like? Um, well, as you can imagine, it was a bit of a, yeah, I mean, it <laughs> it was sink or swim, you know. Yeah. It was very challenging. Um, it was pretty nasty. It was very focused on aesthetics. And I remember our first day of school, we, we would have to walk back from where we'd had our lessons to our boarding house where we'd sleep. And the boys stood with megaphones and they shouted out numbers out of 10 for each girl and how attractive they were. Wow. I was a seven. I mean, fine. You know, but it was like, and that was That's what, horrific. Though. Yeah, that was baptism of fire. That was what it was like for the whole time. It was a horrific place, and I, I anyone who asks me about it, I say don't don't go there. I was at Charter House. I don't mind calling them out. <laughs> but I remember that when you had an eating disorder, someone would sit with you during meals. That was mm. how they dealt with it. So they'd wow. get a, a kind of an older male teacher to sit with the girl. So everyone knew the whole dining room knew that someone was struggling, and that's a terrible. It's a very shame inducing way of of dealing with it. And they didn't know how to talk about it. Yeah, I, I mean even. Now, I, I should say I went to an all-girls school. It was quite unusual, my school, actually, because it was a comprehensive, but it was all girls. Uh, but I loved it. But even now, as uh, you know, I'm nearly 40, I find all-boys schools really intimidating places. Mm. It's like concentrated patriarchy. There's such a macho culture there. So I can't imagine, as a 16-year-old, how I would have felt. It's a terrible culture. I remember there was an amazing incident towards the end of school where, like you said, terrible kind of macho patriarchal culture. And there was a one gay guy who was kind of out as gay in, in the whole year. And on the last day of school, he passed published a list of all the other guys in his year that he'd slept with who'd had girlfriends yeah and who the whole time at school and you know he said this is what you get for bullying me wow. the, and, it's not, and it was a list of like 10 or 12 and that was how we're in the closet and everyone felt at that place that you couldn't be yourself. You should write a book I know <laughs> Surviving Charterhouse yeah. I mean it's always in the news for being for, you know for terrible stories there but um, mm. yeah but I digress. Can you tell me just quickly about some of the challenges of running a charity you said um, with, yeah. with the charity you started with your school friend? Yeah, so I should say I don't run it anymore. So what Ruth chose to do with it, and it was a really good idea, was she founded a cafe, which is in Shoreditch, called the Canvas Cafe. And the idea behind it is that you can write on the walls, um, and every week there's a theme, and you write on the wall about that theme, and then they paint over it, and, and then but they take pictures of it first, so they get a snapshot of what the people who come in think about that particular theme. And she has events there which are a lot of which are to do with with body image and that's what body gossip does now but during the time when I was running the charity I think the major frustration to me was that you have to have a mission statement and everything that you do has to fit with that mission statement so ultimately the reason that I branched out and left body gossip was because I was having lots of teachers saying to me you know it's great that you're talking about body image but actually the issue that we have here is self-harm and um, or exam stress and I wanted to broaden out the range of lessons that we offered but it didn't fit with the mission statement of the charity so yeah that's that's why and it wasn't for any bad reason at all but that's why kind of Ruth and I went our separate ways you parted ways yeah and then talk to me about your second career turning point so this one is yeah I'll let you explain (laughs) so uh, this is a pretty big one pretty major one Um, in 2015 I was invited by the Department for Education to be their mental health champion for schools and you may very well ask what is that and that's what I asked too (laughs) because no one's ever heard of that because I was the first one but they said well to an extent you can define the role and I said well okay you know I'm in three schools a week all over the UK, sometimes beyond. So what I could do is I could report to you what I'm seeing on the ground, best practice, worst practice, concerns from teachers and pupils. And 
they were they seemed pretty happy with that but the the whole thing was about improving mental health for young people that was their big drive um and and you know a, a big kind of manifesto pledge of david cameron immediately it was announced that i was the mental health champion for schools my phone started ringing with people being like my son is on a 15 month waiting list even though he's attempted to take his own life mm. you know we can't get care for him or my daughter has a diagnosis of autism and anxiety and no one's prepared to take responsibility for her just all of these horrific stories and to be honest because most of my work had been in prevention in schools i don't think i'd fully appreciated until that point just how bad services were mm. and I also because the bulk of my work as as I say is with teenagers I thought well I I'm mental health champion for schools so I'm going to have to get some expertise in primary and early years so I started interviewing experts in education educational psychologists you know people who really knew their stuff and put together this picture where I was like okay so the problem is policy so if the government are really serious about improving mental health for young people they need to rethink their education policy and they also need to rethink the impact of austerity So I said that and then they fired me. <laughs> But it, it Cuz they just didn't want to hear it. Was I was an embarrassment to them. I think they thought that I wanted to be like an Instagram influencer and mm -hmm. that I I just do anything to increase my profile and that I just like take the job and read out their press releases. But that is really not me and I think I realized at that moment the extent to which it's not me. I you know, a lot of if you speak to people about But me you know one of the things that my friends say about me is i've got a lot of loyalty and a lot of integrity and you can never force me to say something that i don't believe <laughs> sometimes i change my mind about stuff but that's a different thing when i say it at the time i do believe it and i knew always knew that about myself but i never knew that i had the balls to take on a government until <laughs> <laughs> that point so after i was fired they were like oh it's not you you've done a brilliant job and they were kind of going because they know my other big thing is gender equality and they were saying nikki morgan who was then the education secretary is doing a lot of work around misogyny so we'll give you a role working with her on that mm. and i now look back and i'm like oh that was a little kind of sweetener to go quietly and i thought Mm. Mm. I wonder what really went on. So I did this thing called a subject access request. Um I should say shout out to to BuzzFeed because they really helped me with really? the process of how to do it as I had no idea. And I um yeah, I did this subject How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit juvederm.com. That's j u v e d e r m.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. ...access request, and I was able to request every document held at government level that has my name in it. Wow. And if you see the original document that was delivered to my house is actually covered in brown smudges because I was eating a Cornetto when I read it and my mouth kept falling open because I just couldn't believe the incompetence (laughs) of uh, the, the incompetence and the extent to which it was so early on when I started expressing opinions where they were like, we really need to find a way to get rid of this girl. Like she's embarrassing us. And, um, you know, she, she can't, we, we can't have um, a, a government advisor that criticizes us. And I was looking at it going, surely this calls into question the integrity of every other government advisor, mm. because if they're this shocked, that means no one's ever done it before. Mm. Yeah, they're just creating a total echo chamber. Right. That, I mean, that's that's awful. Can anyone request that from the government? Like, yes, you can. But you have to be very careful in how you word it. You have to say, um, I'm requesting this because... Uh, you, you, there's a wording that you use that, like I say, BuzzFeed helped me with, and you can probably find it online. But you, you have to, they have to be satisfied that you're requesting it for the right reasons. And then the really sinister thing was that when, when I got it, it, um, there was no address on the front. So somebody had hand posted it through my door. I felt like that was a little bit like, we know where you live. Yeah. And then my husband was going, if I see a red dot on your forehead. <laughs> yeah. And then how public were you when, when you you found out all of this about talking about what you discovered about how they talked about you well I, I so I decided that, uh, I didn't anticipate how big the story of me being fired was going to be because to me particularly and it's me sort of nailing my political beliefs to the mask but particularly a conservative government that is just the sort of thing they do so I thought everyone would go mm, yeah we could kind of foresee this But it was huge. I had journalists outside my door um, and I thought, oh, I didn't anticipate this level of media attention. So I I thought I I want this story to get out, but I want it to get out in the right way. And I was having calls from publications that I thought, "Mm, I, I don't really agree with your overarching agenda. So I had to think about who do I trust and Um, I decided to give one exclusive each to newspaper, TV and radio. So that was Newsnight, uh, The Guardian and James O'Brien at LBC, respectively, Mm. Mm. um, because I thought I really trust those three platforms and I know that they will allow me to tell my story in an objective way. Mm. And that's how I got it. I got the truth out there. And how were you feeling mentally during that whole period? Like, how did it affect you on a personal level? Um, It was... So I was also planning my wedding <laughs> at that time. Um, and I remember thinking, you cannot allow this to overshadow your wedding. Like, you'll only, you'll only ever get married once, but you're probably going to fall out with the government quite a few times. So I, I remember thinking, I'm going to put this in a box. And it was only really after I got married in August. In, in the September, I had a bit of a meltdown because I think I'd just put everything to one mm-hmm. side and and thought I'll deal with that later. And yeah, I really in this September I had a really bad month for anxiety because I think it all just kind of hit me. It suddenly hits. Yeah. And then did anyone take over the role? No. So just did they just act it? They just asked it, yeah. That's just awful. Yeah. So no so yeah, just that's just so frustrating. <laughs> 
Yeah, it is. But I think it speaks to the the political system. You know, I, I think democracy is a bit broken. Like, oh, don't get me wrong. I agree with the concept of democracy. I'm not saying we should have dictatorship. But the, we can see from Brexit and various other things that are going on that it doesn't really work at the moment. And that seeing behind the curtain and how the thick of it is, like, I always thought the thick of it was you know, a, a fiction. Mm. It's so, it, it might as well be a documentary. It, it really drove it home to me that we need a different system of, of leadership. Mm, I agree. And then finally, talk to me about your third kind of turning point, which is your new venture. Yes. So it, it kind of hits on what I was talking about earlier, that teachers have done a really excellent job, as, as well as charities and campaigners, I think, of educating what are we on now, Generation Z? <laughs> On mental health. So, uh, you know, for example, last week I was in a primary school. I was talking to 10-year-olds. They were incredibly open about their mental health. They were so emotionally articulate and there was virtually no stigma whatsoever. And that's great. But whereas when I first started my my job, the, the commonest question I used to be asked was, I'm worried about my friend. How do I help them? Now it's, I'm worried about my parents. Mm. Um, I know my parents have got a mental health issue. They refuse to acknowledge it. They don't believe in it. Um, you know, what What can I do? So I thought, I've got to find a way of getting to the adults. And of course, in schools, you've got a captive audience. They have to be there. Whereas if I went to my local town hall and went, right, I'm doing a talk on mental health, only people who are already interested in it would by definition turn up. Yeah. So... I was just kind of thinking about this and I was thinking, you know, how, how do I get into workplaces, etc. When I met up with Lucy Cave, who is head of brands at Bauer Media, she is responsible for a lot of the content at Grazia, Heat, Kiss, Empire, you know, they've, they've, these, they've got a really wide reach. And she said, we really want to do a mental health campaign. And so together we came up with this idea of making mental health first aid mandatory in the workplace in the same way as physical first aid is. So we came up with this campaign idea called Where's Your Head At? Um, Every single Bauer brand backed it in their own way, which is in itself just goes to show you that Lucy Cave is superwoman. Mm. <laughs> like that would never happen <laughs> anywhere else. And um, we got that there were basically three strands to it. So we got a petition which received more than 200,000 signatures and I delivered to Downing Street in October last year. Um, there's business support. So we've got people like Thames Water, WH Smith, um, Lord Sugar, <laughs> you know, saying this is a really good thing. Um, and then political supports. We have had politicians from all of the parties apart from UKIP and sod them. Um, so <laughs> all of them have come together to say we support this um, apart from the government. So the, the government, it was debated in Parliament and the government ministers were, it was almost like they were reading from a sheet they'd been told to read from. And they were saying mental health first aid on its own is not enough. You need to do more to support people's mental health at work. Mm. So if we make mental health first aid mandatory, the people who are currently doing more will think that's all they have to do. I, mean, I don't really understand that as an argument. <laughs> and I, yeah. I, I also think at the moment what you've got is people with employers that really get it and then other people who are being basically bullied for having mental health issues at work. So there's no equality. I'm thinking, well, at least if, if you made it compulsory, that would in, introduce a level of equality. But they're like, no, it should be a voluntary basis and it needs to be more than that. 
So in direct response to that, um, we came up with a manifesto uh, with Mental Health First Aid England with um, a series of things that employers can do, including compulsory mental health first aid. And that manifesto has been backed by virtually every mental health charity in the sector, all the big names that you can think of, Mind, Time to Change, they've all thrown their weight behind it. We are taking that manifesto back to the government and saying, okay, you asked us to do more. Mm. We've done that. Now what? Like, now what's your answer? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So is that, and when are you going to plan to do that? So at the moment, what we're working on is getting support for the manifesto. Um, so if you go to wheresyourheadat.org, you can see the manifesto in full. And we're asking employers to go on and sign up to it and show their support. And we're also asking people to write to their local MPs. So once we've built built up that support, we'll then push for another debate in Parliament, probably around um, October again. Mm. Amazing. I feel like... A lot of my experience in companies has been that they feel like they have done something for mental health, but it's a little bit tokenistic. Mm. So it's like a David Lloyd membership or like a discount somewhere to like have a spa day. And they don't actually go into the root of the problem that much. And a lot of the signposting in companies isn't quite there. So people don't really know how to have those difficult conversations. Yeah. Do you think it's partly to do with managerial styles and also an intergenerational thing in companies? Um, I think you're right that a lot of the feedback that I get is people say, oh, we had this day or this event, um, you know, where there is a lot of tokenism. um, And what's needed is structural change. I think, yes, there is a generational problem in that a lot of the people in senior management roles are of that generation where it was, you know, stiff upper lip and, and don't talk about your problems and that's a sign of weakness. I think the thing we need to impress upon, um, business leaders is the link between efficiency and good mental health. Mm. And I'm actually writing a book at the moment for teenagers about how being mentally well makes you a better learner. (laughs) And so I've had to do a lot of research into, for example, stress not only puts you at greater risk of depression over time, but it also stops you from being able to recall information, interferes with your ability to make decisions effectively, you know, all the things that you want someone to be bringing to the table in a work situation. If you make someone overwork, like if you've got a culture where everybody eats their lunch at their desk, that doesn't actually make them more efficient. Even though they've worked an extra hour, they're not going to be performing as well in the afternoon because all the evidence shows if you go out, get some fresh air, some sunshine, get away from your desk, you come back with more uh, sort of firing on all cylinders. So it's, it's things like that, having a culture where, you know, it's it's kind of enforced that this is what we do. We don't overwork. You know, you don't send your colleague an email at 10 p.m. That's that's not acceptable unless it's an absolute emergency. Mm. I think it's those kinds of things that employers need to be doing. Mm, it's fascinating. It's also fascinating that for entrepreneurs and founders, mm. I feel like this rule book kind of goes out the window. Yeah. And like you were saying don't send emails after 10 p.m. And I was thinking, God, I'm so guilty of like, I worked all like sometimes one, two in the morning because it's my own thing. And actually, like these rules still apply. We're all still human. And I don't think founders or companies look after their mental health particularly well. I agree. And I think a lot of people have this idea of being self-employed as oh suddenly my I'd be really mentally well because I'd be my own boss but actually as somebody who's been my own boss now for a very long time I think I put more pressure on myself Mm. than any boss I've ever had has ever done because when you're you're self-employed or you own a business you you develop this mentality of I'm going to take all the work that comes my way because six months down the line I don't know 
where my income is going to come from. And it's really hard to let that go. Even when you've reached a point where you're like, no, I know I'll be working in a year's time because all the evidence shows <laughs> that I'm going to get a steady stream of work. You still think, oh, but what if? Yeah. And you have feel like you have to take it all and every opportunity that comes your way. Mm-hmm. It's that slightly deep rooted uncertainty about the future when you are your own boss and you'll see you can't fire yourself. No. So <laughs> you've got to be a good boss to yourself. Um, so how do you look after your own mental health on a kind of personal level? Um, so I find exercise to be really beneficial. I tried going to the gym and I got into it for a while, but then I realized that um, I didn't really like it. <laughs> um, there, there's something about the the culture of gyms, the, the music, the, just everything about it that I find quite anxiety inducing. So now um, I try to exercise in nature because there's a lot of evidence to show that that kind of magnifies the positive impact. So um, I go to the park, I walk, I run, I do yoga. The good news about that is that the dogs are at the park and dogs are magic, I think, for, for mental health. They're just it's impossible to be in a bad mood around a dog, mm. I find. Um, so, I <laughs> yeah, so I do that. Um, I make sure that I carve out time for um, things like I'm, I'm really into music, um, not just listening to music, but also um, I sing as well. So I, I make sure that I have um, a project that has nothing to do with work on the go, like a creative project that I can throw myself into. Um, and I also recently got a cat. And basically animals are the answer. Animals are the answer. But I I do think like that, it gives you a structure and a routine. Because again, when you work for yourself, you tend to wake up when you have to, a bit before you have to go to work. And that means that I didn't really have a routine and routine is great for your mental health. Now I have to wake up the same time every day because the cat needs her breakfast (laughs) and and I can't let her go hungry. So, and, you know, I have an excuse for, you you know, there are things that maybe I would have had to have said yes to that I'm like, no, I I can't, unfortunately, I have to... (laughs) Look after my cat. To look after my cat, yeah. (laughs) I think it's a great excuse. (laughs) You said about um, getting out into nature. I, I totally agree. It makes you feel so much better. It's something I did want to ask about was to do with technology mm. is that something I really worry about, you know, in far into the future when I have children is that we're so technologically switched on the whole time. And I feel like with the work that you do going into schools, that must have a huge impact, like Instagram and everything that we're seeing online. It's really interesting. So when you ask young people to list their worries in order, social media will often appear, but it's normally about 10th. Whereas if you ask their teachers and parents, they'll nearly always put it at number one. Mm. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think children can't imagine life without technology and smartphones because they've... It'd be like me saying to you, what effect do you think television has had on your mental health? You'd be like, well, I don't know because I have no basis for comparison. But I also think that it's having more of a profound effect on our generation's mental health than it is on them. Mm. So I think when we say it's making my children really anxious, what we're actually saying is it's making me really anxious <laughs> because it's been a massive gear shift for us. Whereas for them, it's like they're, they're cool with it because it's just always been there. There are elements of it, cyberbullying, um, the, the impact that it can have on sleep uh, in particular are two of the things that I think we need to be really watchful about um, and the the kind of trends that it creates around body image. that, that They're all a thing. They're all mm. a phenomenon. But I do think there is a tendency to kind of demonise social media and that's quite convenient, like particularly if you're a politician. Mm. You'd be like, oh, it's, I'm, I'm going to talk to Facebook. Like, they're not on Facebook. No teenagers are on <laughs> Facebook. Get off Facebook. <laughs> it's, like, it's not cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Amazing. That's really interesting. Yeah, that gear shift is that we're not used to it at all. Mm. So we're overwhelmed by it. So finally, um, just Natasha Devon's Guide to Life, what would be your, the key changes that you would like to see in schools to make all of our mental health better? Wow, that that's... <laughs> in, in a summary? <laughs> in three words. Um, that's a massive question. I, I mean, I think that the... The school system is no longer fit for purpose. There are more people that it doesn't serve than does now. So what it really needs is um, redesigning with the benefit of the knowledge that we have about how the brain develops and um, sort of developmental psychology and special educational needs. And, uh, you know, we just know so much more than we now than we did 100 years ago when the curriculum was designed. So I would be tempted to... Um, just redesign the whole thing and and you know there are for example uh, Coventry University London slightly confusing it's Coventry University but it's the London campus they basically built their campus with well-being in mind so everything about it like even to the layout of the building it is like how is this going to keep everyone well throughout the day and that's staff and students that I think is how you build an, mm. an educational environment, yeah. but it, um, it that requires revolution because um, you know political parties tend to only think in five year cycles. Mm. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for being the most wonderful guest, Natasha. Thank you for your quick summary. Sorry, I asked you a massive question <laughs> towards the end. Um, if people would like to find out more about you, where should they go online? Um, my website is natashadevon.com. Um, you can buy a copy of my book, A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental, on there. And if you want to find out more about where's your head at it's wheresyourheadat.org thank you Natasha thanks for listening to She Started It with Angelica Malin if you've enjoyed this episode then don't forget to subscribe rate and review and you can follow me on Twitter at Jelly Malin Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 